Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Vernon Payne. Just imagine being, like, reduced to a dick size, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know how it is. <laughs> that and more, but before that, folks, it is coming very, very, very soon on July 15th. That is a Thursday. We will be having our next Risk live show at Caveat on the Lower East Side in New York City. Mary Sin, Harold Cox, Angela Sawyer, Gail Thomas, and myself. The show will be at 7 p.m. Eastern. You gotta show proof of vaccination. It will also be simultaneously live streamed on YouTube for anyone who's not in New York. So be sure to get your tickets, whether for the in-person show on stage at Caveat, or uh, the live stream on YouTube. So be sure to get your tickets for either the stage show or the live stream. The tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. Again, that's Thursday, July 15th, 7 p.m. Eastern at Caveat in New York City. We're so excited for our second show back up on stage. Also... A lot of people have been asking recently, hey, does the Story Studio still do classes during the summertime? And does the Story Studio still do customized corporate workshops during the summertime? We certainly do. You can ask any questions like that whenever you want to me at Kevin at show.com, but you can find all that info about the Story Studio at thestorystudio.org. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Pharaoh Sanders behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Wise Up. Man, this is a fascinating episode. I have to say, you know, whether we're going through tough times or flush times, we're still able to churn out these remarkable episodes. I'm just consistently proud of that. Another way of saying we're going through a rough time. We're we're still very worried about our financial situation and our ability to continue. But we are so devoted to continuing. I'll tell you one thing. We are super, super, super looking forward to our Thursday show at Caveat in New York City, July 15th. It's the first show back on stage with such joy that I can't wait. Can't wait to be back on stage. And we've been having so much fascinating interaction with you guys, the fans, recently. A fan reached out to me and she wanted me to make a series of video greetings for her friend who had gone through some rough stuff in the past couple of years. And uh, it was so moving. It was so moving because she sent me a lengthy video explaining what her friend's deal is, that her friend is a big fan of the show, and what her friend means to her. And then I made this video back, which was, you know, a series of videos. I don't know. It might have been like an hour's worth of videos back. This was all a paid arrangement. But it was just so moving to be like really expressing the nitty gritty of how I feel about certain spiritual issues or psychological issues and trying to, you know, trying to help out a listener out there in that way. I really value that so much, how with Risk, just being the kind of show that it is, we're very in touch with you guys. We very much engage with you guys. We learn a lot from our listeners. We get so many amazing stories from our listeners. Whenever somebody tells me that the show really means a lot to them in their life, I have to agree, and you know, I don't mean, you know, not just because it's my job, but because I'm being moved by these stories, and I'm being moved by your being moved by these stories. It's such a very, very communal experience, and when we look back at the broad scope of it, the legacy of the show, 11 years... It really is an education, the whole show. It, like, it's been an education for me, and I know it's been an education for all of us, I think. So, I don't know. I, that was just on my mind to express some gratitude for this community, this particular family of Risk listeners out there. Speaking of which, in a little bit, we're going to hear an anecdote by Rick Summer, which became a little bit more than an anecdote. It became a longer story, actually. And Rick is a fan of the show. He says he's been listening since 2009. But before that, we're going to hear one of the stories that we recorded at our first 
live show back on stage last month at Caveat. This one comes to us from Vernon Payne, and it was Vernon's first time doing the show, and it was his first time being back on stage in a long time. You can find Vernon on Twitter at cool underscore ass underscore Vern, and here he is now, Vernon Payne, with a story we call The Butter Knife Incident. Nice. How are you guys doing? You guys enjoying it? That's what's up. That's what's up, man. In the fall of 2008, I started to do stand-up comedy in Albany, New York. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Albany, New York before, but it fucking sucks. <laughs> right? It sucks. Like, it has the look of Flint, Michigan, and the alcoholism of Staten Island. They're just not a good place to be. You know? Like, if you like the winter and subtle racism, this is the vacation destination for you, you know? I grew up in New York City, and uh, I never really encountered racism in New York. Like, I watch it on TV like white people do, you know what I mean? It's like I'm going to my mom's like, man, us Negroes are having a hard time in it, aren't we? You know what I mean? My family pretty much made sure that they kind of sheltered me from all of that stuff that they grew up with, you know? I've been beat up by black and white kids just like Martin would have wanted, you know what I mean? It's the beat down of justice. Um, (laughs) But like, Albany is really the place where like, I've like really felt racism. You know, I can count on my hands like how many times I've been called the N-word. I've had like women who wouldn't date me because they're scared of black penises. You know? It's like my dick is gonna like pop on, like, gotcha, bitch, you know what I mean? And then like <laughs> drag you to disownment. It's not gonna, you know? You know? Just imagine being like reduced to a dick size, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know how it is. <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, going home. I had this cop follow me for about 10 minutes straight. And when he finally pulled me over, he didn't tell me why he was pulling me over. And he looking in my car and trying to get me to confess that I had drugs in my car and I had nothing. And he looks in my car and he sees a baggie with like some white stuff in it, you know? And he's like, can you, have, you can get out of the car? I was like, sure, whatever, you can search it. Because I know that I didn't have any drugs on me. So he sees the bag, he picks it up, and he's like, what's this? And I'm like, um, that is frosting from a Cinnabon that I ate earlier. <laughs> if you look at me, I have love handles for a fucking reason. This is the reason why this is here. So if you can kindly put it back, I want to eat that later when I get home too. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's crazy the amount of shit that you have to deal with as a black kid growing up. Anywhere, from teenager to adult, it just crazy amount of shit. Even with all of that said, Albany was like a decent place to learn how to be a stand-up comedian. And after a while of like feeling myself, I decided to join this comedy contest at SUNY Oneonta in Oneonta, New York. 
I asked on social media, like, who, who want to come with me? And one of my cool white lady friends, Colleen, uh, she was like, I'll go with you. And I was like, all right, awesome. Now, um, I used to work with Colleen at this place called Hot Topic. You know? <laughs> you guys remember Hot Topic, right? You don't remember Hot Topic. Like, uh, Hot Topic was the place depressed vampires <laughs> and juggalos go to shop. That's just pretty much <laughs> what that place was, you know? The Limp Biscuit King, that's, that, that, that's, that's where we go. <laughs> so uh, this day, um, me and Colleen, we hop in the car and we drive, I think it's about like five hours away from Albany and uh, we get there and dead at night, it's like seven, eight or something like that. And uh, there is no one around. It is just dead. And I, I see that my black spider sense turns on. Right now, uh, if you guys don't know what black spider sense is, it's pretty much like, as a black person, like when you're in a in a known white space, and there's not enough white people around for you to feel safe, like any place in Pennsylvania, you know what I mean? <laughs> or there is just too many white people around for you to feel safe, like at a Wu Tang concert. You guys have no idea how crazy it is just white kids saying the n-word to you like the last like lifeline right there like it's fucking you know so me and colleen we uh, hop into school and uh you see white comedians a comedy magician whatever the show gets started and we all do our thing you know telling the jokes the dude's doing his comedy you know the comedy magic crap or whatever and and uh at the end of it it all gets tallied up and what do you know your boy Vernon Payne lost to a comedy magician. Um, <laughs> the most depressing shit ever, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I can't, you, listen, man, you can't be card tricks and dick jokes. That shit don't work, you know? And uh, so I'm like, all right, cool. You know, we uh, hop back in the car and we just head back down to Albany with all the depression that comes with it, right? About 30 to 40 minutes goes by and I start to see that my car is running on E. So I'm like, all right, I gotta get off. So I get off this random exit, and I'm driving to get some gas, and I see a gas station right there, and like it's dead at night, it's kind of foggy out, and I run up, and this gas station is closed. And I'm like, shit. Okay, well, let me keep on driving some more. It's, it's shit scary, man. Like it's foggy everywhere. It's just me, this black dude with this white woman in a random town. I'm like, yo, this is a horror movie, bro. <laughs> and this is how I die a little bit, I think. Like, uh, only thing I need is like a, like a ghost of an old slave and says like, you don't need to go there, boss. Like that's, that's what I need, you know what I mean? <laughs> so as I continue driving, out of nowhere comes a bar to my, on my driver's hand side through the fog. And I look at Kelly and I'm like, well, I guess we gotta go in there and see what's up. So I pull over, I go in the bar, and when I walk in, there are 20 white faces staring at me. And I know I'm lost, and they for damn sure know that I'm lost. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everyone's around, there's a guy playing duck hunt, I'm like, this shit ain't safe for me right now. <laughs> And uh, I was thinking that like, in this type of situation, there is one brave racist soul, you know? 
in the situation. It's like, well, well, you're mighty lost, boy, right? You know? Now, like, like I said before, like I've been called the N word before. I have never been called boy. But seeing how I was outnumbered, boy's okay. I'm okay with that one. You know what I mean? I'll take the L on that one right there. You know, where you're from, boy? Well, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, so what do you want? You know what I mean? Uh, so like, and I was like, hey, do you guys know where's the gas station? A guy popped up. He was like, hey, yes, uh, there's a gas station down the road. So I hop back in the car. Colleen's like, oh, good, you're safe. So like, we, uh, we hop back in the car, and I go back down to that gas station. And would you know that that gas station is closed as well? And I'm just like, shit, I got no gas left. So I turn around, and coming right back up. And luckily enough, that bar was closing. So everyone is outside of the bar. And that same guy who was like, hey, you know, the gas station down there, he's like, hey, listen, um, I live across the street. I have some gas I can give you. And I was like, oh no, this is how I die. Exactly, you know? <laughs> the old, like, I got gas across the street trick. You know what I mean? That's what you do. <laughs> so, uh, so I hop in the car and I tell Colleen this. And she was like, well, okay. This is gonna be a weird one. So we, uh, so we go to the dude's house. And uh, he goes inside and I am in the car with Colleen. And I tell Colleen, you know, this is kind of a weird experience, but it, um, if anything happens, check it out. In the passenger side door, there is a hunter's knife. You can grab the hunter's knife. So she's like, all right. <laughs> so she reaches inside the passenger side door to get the knife. And she pulls out a butter knife. <laughs> she pulls out a butter knife. And like, you can't do anything with a butter knife. And like, Colleen is not fucking Jason Bourne. That shit ain't happening right there, right? <laughs> but as she holds it, I'm trying to figure out like, why is there a butter knife in my car? And I realized that like, at least three days before, I used that butter knife to spread frosting on my toaster strudel. <laughs> you know, cause I'm a gentleman, you know what I mean? That's what I do. You know, most people, they take the bite of the thing and spread it on. No, I spread that shit around because I'm a classy motherfucker. That's how I do it there. So I was like, well, if you got this butter knife, you better butter knife his motherfucking ass, I guess, you know? So in the glove compartment, there is a pair of brass knuckles I have in there. I take that out, put it in my back pocket because I'm ready for anything, just not at that moment, right? And I hop out the car, and the guy comes out, and uh, I got my hand in my back pocket just in case, and he's giving me gas, and we're having a good conversation there. And he shakes my hand, he says, I say thank you, and then I go. And I'm thinking to myself, that is a nice thing for a stranger to do for another stranger. That shit's amazing, you know? And the fucked up part about it is that, like, I had to be fearful of what would happen as a black dude in a random town with a white woman. Because not just now, but like in history, that shit doesn't lean itself to the two just hanging out. Whether you're friends or whether you're dating, if you're lost somewhere where you quote unquote shouldn't be, things get a little bit weird. And it's the first time like I really had to like think about what it would be like if I were like one of my ancestors, you know? It's fucked up. I shouldn't have to think about shit like that. The second part to me that's kind of fucked up, at least to me, is that like, 
I judge this guy based off my own preconceived notions. And I don't like that about myself. I think we all kind of do that a little bit, you know? Judge everyone of our own preconceived notions. And I feel like if I'm going to inhabit the ideas of the civil rights movement, I have to live that shit fully, you know? I have to believe in it. Even though I might be right, you know what I mean? <laughs> I always keep that in the back of my fucking head. But I always have to. It's messed up. But I, it was a pretty cool thing for a guy to do. So I uh, hop back in the car and I take Colleen home. And then I drive myself home. And when I get home, I went back upstairs and I put the real knife inside the fucking car. Because in the words of our former president, George Bush, fool me once, shame on me. <laughs> you fool me, can't get fooled again. You know what I'm saying? All right, guys, thank you very much. I appreciate it. from? Chicago, sir. You're a long way from home. Oh, we're just passing through, taking a little bathroom break, sir, is all. Any of you all know what a sundown town is? A sundown or sunset town was a city, town, or neighborhood in the U.S. that excluded non-whites after dark. We gotta pass the train tracks. What time is it? It's 7 uh, it's, uh, 7.05. Can we make it in four minutes? We have to. The term sundown came from the signs that were posted at the town's borders stating, Negro, don't let the sun set on you here. They're called sundown towns because oftentimes black people were allowed to work there, usually in butler or nanny capacities, but they weren't allowed to own homes there. So if they were there after sundown, they would either be escorted out by law enforcement escorted out by the threat of violence by an angry mob, or actually faced real violence. That's the tracks. Attica, watch your speed. How much time left? 30 seconds. As a black man navigating this world, I have to be acutely aware of my environment at all times, lest I unwittingly stray into a no-go area, which I must add, still do exist. This land is your land. This land is my land. From Thank you.
It's September 1964, and I'm a couple weeks into my second grade at my Catholic elementary school. I had just turned seven in August, and according to the church, I was now capable of reason, and it was time to get me ready for my first communion. The person who was responsible for doing that was Sister George Ellen. Uh, she was my religion teacher, and she was one of those nuns in the long gray habit, no smiles, all business, and she scared the living shit out of me. I learned real early on that Sister was not one of those who celebrated inquisitive students. Uh, one morning, she stood in front of the class and said, Communion wafers, once consecrated by a priest, actually become the body of Jesus, and you may never touch it with your hands. Well, nowadays, I think the Catholic Church has changed its rules a little bit, and uh, parishioners can actually touch the wafers. But back in the 60s, that was the case. Nobody but the priest could touch it, and they actually placed it on your tongue. And I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to wrap my head around this idea of this flat little piece of bread has now somehow become somebody's body, and it's Jesus. And I just asked, in all seriousness, I, I said, why can't we touch Jesus's body? And, oh, sister flipped out. This is serious. You can't be a smart aleck. I got pushed into the corner. I had to stand there, and I had to hold two heavy textbooks, uh, one in each hand, outstretched, horizontal, and wasn't allowed to let my arms drop. You know, and it wasn't too long after my wafer-touching incident that, you know, sister really laid a big one on us. She just very matter-of-factly said during one of our lectures in preparation for Holy Communion that, children, remember, you're only alive because God constantly thinks about each and every one of you and all the other people in the world all at the same time. And if you ever do something that angers or displeases God, He will stop thinking about you and you will instantly die. I was stricken with a sense of impending doom, like the legend of the sword that hung by a single thread over the head of Damocles. That shit stays with you. Good thing I hadn't touched that wafer. I probably would have melted like those Nazis in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I couldn't help but think about all the other crap I might do that would make God want to off me for some reason. So for the next several years, I was afraid and obsessed about whether my next thought or action might be my last. But go figure, you know, I was seven. Wasn't exactly on my A game when it came to reason, even though the church thought I was. But I did get older, I did get smarter. I stayed alive, despite the juvenile screw-ups, lies, impure thoughts, all that stuff. And I think I was lucky, because by the time I got to eighth grade, I had outgrown religion, I discarded it, all the superstition, intimidation, all the fundamentalism, gone. I was an atheist, and that sort of Damocles just faded away. You know, but sadly, I, I see that a lot of folks you know, aren't as lucky as I was. Uh, let me give you an example. My first real job after college was as a medical photographer at a medium-sized teaching hospital in Ohio. I was responsible for taking pictures, making videotapes, anything they needed to help with the education program. So it wasn't unusual to get a call from one of the doctors and ask me to come somewhere in the hospital and take some pictures. 
So I got one of those calls. Doc says, come on down to the psych unit right away. I need photos of my new patient. So I walk into this lady's room. It's full of people. Doctors and nurses are all surrounding this middle-aged woman. She's groaning and hissing and yanking on the leather belts that, you know, tied her to the bed hand and foot. A little bit like The Exorcist, if you've seen that movie. And I looked down at her and noticed that her right eyeball was missing. There wasn't anything there but a bloody gaping hole. So I moved in closer, you know, to get my first photo. And I bent over, get down there and get a lot of detail. All of a sudden, one of the docs grabs me and yanks me back. And he says, oh, my God, be careful. She bites. You know, and I never wanted to pass up the good advice. I changed my lenses, stepped back, got the pictures from a different distance. And I was able to piece together the backstory on this woman. I talked to the doctor and some of the other hospital people. Turns out she's just a typical housewife, but she had grown up in an extremely religious home. And she was still a God-fearing fundamentalist and believed the Bible was nothing but the inerrant words of God. This lady had no prior psychiatric issues, but she was literally God-fearing. And something she thought she had done, either looked at something or she read something. And as far as she knew, that was sinful and she had screwed up. But it, whatever she thought she had done, it had snapped the thread holding her sword of Damocles and that blade came down on her hard. Uh, apparently, the psychotic episode started at home. Her husband found her shaking and screaming, got her to the hospital, and they admitted her to the psych unit, but they left her alone in the room, and that's when she jammed her finger in the socket and gouged her eyeball out. I mean, she ripped it apart into little gooey pieces and jammed all those down into the air conditioner next to her bed. Then they restrained her, and that's how she was when I first saw her. You know, you think, why, why did she blind herself? Well, there's a Bible verse in the book of Matthew that says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away from you. Now, was the lady's reaction extreme? Sure. But the motivation didn't surprise me. She's a fundamentalist. So many people's lives are manipulated internally by these fundamentalist religious beliefs. And then add on top of that, the external manipulation from pastors and other clergy who exploit those beliefs for their own personal power and wealth. Yeah, I feel bad for her. I feel bad for anybody who got indoctrinated as a young kid. And I feel bad for those who weren't able to move beyond it, get rid of the fantastical beliefs, the burdens of irrational fears. You can only imagine the anguish this woman must have felt when she decided that self-mutilation was the only way she could feel somehow better. There are so many more real existential threats to deal with, you know, without piling on imaginary ones. I think philosophy professor Bart Ehrman got it right when he said this about fundamentalism. It's no fun, it's too much damn, and it's not enough mental. They don't get enough to leave from 
This is Risk. This is XTC behind me now. And this song has been in the queue to possibly include on the show since 2009. But, you know, I've always felt, like, so iffy about this song because there's some wonky arguments in it. Like, right at the top, you know, people don't have enough to eat. It's like, yeah, very real problem. 100% humanity's doing. (laughs) But anyway, I can very much relate to Rick Summers' story about being haunted by nuns (laughs) as a child. And I really want to record at some point some sort of, like, exploration of my memories of the Bible. I was raised, obviously, with many parts of the Bible as a kid, but uh, when I was in college, I decided to read the entire thing. And I'll never forget, I was, like, somewhere in the Old Testament, Micah or something like that, where I was like, holy shit. This is like reading the Marquis de Sade. Like, I was like, how much sadism am I going to have to keep reading from this God figure in this book? Just over and over fantasizing about taking our babies and smashing their heads open on rocks. (laughs) It's like, what the fuck? Folks, if you do believe that you were created in God's image... Good on you, but please don't be smashing babies' heads open on rocks. One of his deep, burning desires, apparently, but I'm hoping you can refrain. And before Rick Summer, we heard an interstitial about sundown towns put together by me and Jeff Barr. Parts of it were uh, from that recent HBO series, Lovecraft Country. But in the process of putting that interstitial together, I learned that a town 15 minutes from where I grew up was notoriously a sundown town. (sighs) And all of that was inspired by that first story by Vernon Payne. Folks, this week's Patreon bonus story comes to us from Brooks Whelan. That's why I decided to become a biomedical engineer. When I was 18, I was dating a girl, and I was like, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to go into engineering. And I go, cool. Me too, then. There are so many bonus stories over there on Patreon, as well as lots of check-ins, interviews with staff and storytellers, access to our video classes, links to video versions of our live streams. There is just an enormous amount of content to be found over there on Patreon. But the main thing is, if you become a member there, you are helping keep risk running which is not metaphorical <laughs> like you are really really helping to ensure that this show will be listenable toable each week we are hard at work on a second podcast a whole different series that we're hoping will reach an entirely different audience and that we're hoping will keep risk running to see if we can create a show for folks who don't want their stories to be risky, in a nutshell. And we wish that we didn't have to ask for so much help 
from our audience, but that's the situation. So check out all of the wonderful stuff that can be found at patreon.com slash risk. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time donation, that is over at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Our final story on this week's episode goes into difficult territory around sexual assault and confusion around all of that. It's hard for me to know exactly how to word that because it takes the context that only storytelling can provide to make it make sense. So anyway, there's upset and confusion around issues of consent in this story. This one comes to us from our dear friend, Melanie Mosley, who does a lot of theatrical and performance work at melaniemosley.com. And she also does a lot of coaching around sexuality at empoweredpleasure.org. And we have always agreed that if we had known each other when we were kids, we would have been very good friends. But it all worked out, because we're friends now. 
<laughs> okay, without further ado, folks, here is Melanie Mosley with a story we call Coming To. I come to and I am naked and I am riding this guy. My breasts are bouncing. My hair is in my hand. I'm moaning like I'm some kind of porn star. But now I've just gained this awareness that I'm in this porn. And my brain says, just keep performing. And so that's what I do. I keep grinding and I keep riding this guy, my hands in my hair. I have no idea where I am. I don't recognize this hotel room. I barely recognize this guy. He is familiar. I mean, I, I know I met him in the bar earlier. British accent. Okay, so it starts to slowly materialize in my brain. His name is Andrew. That's his name. That's right. I was reading a book over a dirty martini at the old school bar, the Landmark Inn in Marquette, Michigan, in the UP with the Upers. I was on a business trip. I was just having a drink and relaxing before heading up. I've got an early morning. I've got classroom presentations at 8 a.m. This is my normal routine during this time. I mean, I worked in international education and I traveled the country encouraging college students to study abroad. I was constantly on the road between cities and I'd land in some hotel and I'd grab food and a drink at the most convenient bar or restaurant and then I'd head for bed. During that time, I really liked sitting at the bar because I could be on my own and read and then sometimes other folks would sit down next to me. like. I feel like that's how people on the road on their own make new connections. I love getting to know people. I'm an extrovert and traveling alone is really hard. So I treasured these sweet connections. It made the road feel bearable. But this connection with Andrew with the British accent was entirely different. I have no memory of what happened between a quick chat with him at the bar and this wild sex act that I seem to be participating in at this moment that I am continuing to participate in. I also have no idea how much later this is. I have no idea what time it is. I can see out the window and it's dark. And so I probably have not missed meeting up with my contact, Bob. So that's good. We, I notice, are definitely in a hotel room. That's good. And while this room is huge, clearly a suite, the wallpaper is actually identical to the wallpaper in my hotel room. So we are probably still at the Landmark Inn. That's great. Andrew moans. 
He flips me over and starts fucking me from behind. He is a super big guy, like super strong. And I am 4'11". So this takes him no effort at all. I am just instantly on my hands and knees, butt in the air, his cock inside me. Fuck. I have no idea if he's using a condom. Fuck. I am going to have to get an STI test when I get home. Shit. I get another flash of sitting down at another bar with Andrew. I think it's the top floor of the landmark. I've been here before, so I recognize that bar. I remember stumbling. I lost my glasses. I wonder where they are. He finishes. He comes inside me. I roll over. Hey, um... Thanks for that. I say, uh, I got a really early morning meeting, so I really need to head out right now. He says, let me give you my number. Call me later if you'd like. And he grabs a piece of paper as I root around for all my missing clothes. The glasses are gone, as far as I can tell, and I can't find my watch either. I do have my phone, thank God. It's 6.30 a.m. That is good. He hands me his phone number. He kisses me on the top of the head, and I head out into the hall. Yep. This is the same hotel. I am at the Landmark Inn. Yay! Top floor! I head downstairs to my room, and I make a cup of coffee, and I jump in the shower. Gotta clear my head before they pick me up and bring me to the university. And you know what? I can do this. I'm just outside as Bob, my contact, drives up. He's the head of international education at Marquette University, and he'll be bringing me to the classrooms. He says, oh, let me get you some breakfast. We can go to Baby Cakes and then stop by the baking company and get you some seed bread to take home. It's a local specialty. You'll love it. Great, I say. The minute we order our breakfast, I excuse myself and I head for the bathroom. And I sit down on the toilet, clothes on. And I lean down with my hands on my head and I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I am a 42-year-old married mother of a kindergartner. What the hell with this 20-something kind of behavior? What the fuck are you doing? Why did you not stop and just leave when you first came to? Jesus. And by the way, Mel, this is not the first time that you have ended up in bed with some guy that you don't know. This is just the first time that you don't remember what happened before you got there. And yeah, maybe he roofied you. Or maybe you just drank too fucking much and blacked the fuck out. You, my friend, have been blackout drunk before. It's just never quite been this dangerous. So what are you going to do? And then I splash some water on my face and I head back out with a smile and a twinkle in my eye despite the raging headache and off for a day of recruiting students to study abroad and to develop their cultural competence. On some level, that is really ironic. And then back at the hotel bar, at the end of the day, I'm settling down, I'm thinking through this and I've got my dinner and I've got my book and this time a glass of water. Andrew comes in with the British accent and sits down right next to me. Can I buy you a drink? Can he buy me a drink? Well, 
Did he slip me something last night? Did he take advantage of me while I was blackout drunk and he knew it? Or was he too drunk and he didn't know what he was doing? Or did I seduce him and he really thought that he had consent? I have to admit, I, I literally have no idea. And it is true. I have had sex with strangers in the past while on the road. It was kind of sort of my MO at the time. I was the family breadwinner. My husband was a stay-at-home dad, taking care of our five-year-old kid. Kind of <laughs> the typical story of the high-powered businessman with a woman in every port. Just reverse the genders. Unconventional, I know, but that's how I generally behave. And yeah, I had guilt about it, but I never felt before now that I was actually putting myself in dangerous situations. Today, I feel that way. Can I buy you a drink? Andrew's just sitting there, calmly smiling, super clean-cut, business suit, innocuous. Like a regular middle-aged businessman guy. I mean, like, maybe if I get to know him, I'll find out there was nothing nefarious here. I mean, if I normalize this situation then perhaps I am not a raging alcoholic making bad decisions. Maybe this is just like some little affair. Like it won't affect my marriage or my kid. Just a nice little relationship on the side. I mean, something like 60% of monogamous people cheat during their lifetimes. Men more than women, admittedly, whatever. But as I said, I'm unconventional. Can I buy you a drink? And... I let him, and he knows exactly what to order, a dirty martini. We start sharing stories. He's a dad of two young twin girls and a teenage boy. He works for Pfizer, travels all around the Midwest region, meeting with doctors and hospital administrators, peddling his drugs, hates his job, but it pays the bills, grew up in Brighton in the UK, went to college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and just stayed. So yay, we have a study abroad connection. Hey, look at that, that's great. Unhappily married, blah, blah, blah. He seems reasonable. He seems like a, a normal human being, just an ordinary, not completely satisfied kind of guy, which I have to say is really reassuring. I mean, he doesn't seem scary and I don't feel threatened. And I wish that I would have been more centered, more authentic last night and that I just would have stopped fucking him immediately and said like this is what's going on with me but I mean that would have been honestly speaking my truth but that is not what I did I just I didn't want to embarrass him at the time I was worried that he would feel bad that he did a wrong thing and so just going along with it seemed much easier and now as I'm sitting here talking with this man I I feel like he might not have been embarrassed and maybe he would have stopped and went, oh, wow, that's, I'm sorry. Or maybe he did actually just slip me something and then this is acts of manipulation. I, I, I don't know. I truly have no clue. So two weeks later, he offers to buy me a ticket to come out and visit him in Wisconsin. Fuck. <laughs> and I mean, just like, can I buy you a drink? I accept and I'm thinking, well, I mean, maybe this could be some kind of 
ongoing affair while I'm on the road. Maybe this is some kind of rom-com story of a man and a woman in unhappy marriages that meet each other on the road and have this wild night together, but ultimately fall in love and ride off into the sunset together. We spend a long weekend together, making dinner, taking walks, having sex, going to restaurants. We go to a casino and we win like a thousand dollars playing five card draw, which we immediately lose, but it was fun. And it kind of feels normal. But do I really want to lose my family over this? Am I really invested in this relationship? And it hits me ultimately that, ah, no. I'm actually not really interested in this guy. I mean, we don't really have a connection. I mean, not from the first unconscious fuck and not walking through the grocery stores we're doing right now, picking out snacks. I mean, I I have a family at home. But my question to myself is this, like, how did I fall into this? And I think it's my drive to be a people pleaser at the expense of my own needs, my lack of understanding of who I actually am and what I actually want and my drive to numb myself with substances. I just don't want anybody else to be embarrassed or uncomfortable and I'm happy to like hold that myself. I gave up any sense of self to allow comfort for Andrew, to protect him from feeling like he took advantage of me, did something wrong. That drive to make sure that he wasn't uncomfortable was so strong that I did not even think of the implications for me or for my kid or for my husband at the time. Once I got back home after that weekend, I told him I wasn't interested in hanging out anymore and I didn't feel a connection and I blocked him. And again, I will never know what actually happened on that first night. I don't know if he slipped me something. I don't know if I was blackout drunk. I don't know if he was taking advantage or not. What I do know is that event showed me that I need to do a ton of internal work to find out who I am and what I actually want. And so 10 years later, I found a group focused on sex positivity and I realized that I had found my tribe. I I started taking classes on boundaries and consent, and I learned that no is a complete sentence. I can just say no, and that yes has to be a hell yes, otherwise it's a no. And I still have that kid now in college, and his dad and I remain friends and great co-parents. And also, I'm still traveling. But now I'm traveling the country doing my one-woman show all about my journey from monogamy to polyamory. And I have a much better sense of who I am. And, hmm, admittedly, COVID has shown me that alcohol is, in fact, a go-to coping mechanism for me. And I slip up. I did big time during this pandemic. But fortunately, all of my relationships right now are really based on honest and open communication. That was not the case before. I have to say, I feel like the road that I'm on is facing the right direction. That said, I think it's going to be a pretty long one.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Teenage Fan Club behind me now, and we just heard from Melanie Mosley. You can find Melanie at melaniemosley.com. Her show, Sexology, the musical, is probably going to be touring again soon now that everything's back up. It was winning fringe festivals before the pandemic, and so I think she's bringing it all back. And Melanie's story was edited by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Don't forget, we are back at Caveat in New York City on Thursday, July 15th at 7 p.m. Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. And hey, if you have ever wondered what it might be like to get coaching from me. I'm at kevinallison.com. I have coached trial lawyers on making their closing statements. I once coached two cancer specialists, doctors, on communicating more compassionately with their patients. I have advised folks who were incarcerated on preparing their personal essays for parole hearings. I once coached a Unitarian minister on a sermon. I've helped people with eulogies, wedding toasts, college application essays. I've helped tour guides and social workers and, of course, teachers and people who have to make business presentations and lots of performers. I've directed solo shows. I'm currently coaching someone on his memoir someone else on a personal essay she's trying to get published, and someone else on the YouTube videos that he's creating to explain what professional services he offers. And I've also met with people for broader life advice, especially around issues of sexuality and gender, kink and BDSM, overcoming sexual shame or post-traumatic stress. If you know anything about me, you know that I am deeply honored to listen, to show up, and really hear people. There was a fella that uh, I met with 10 years ago who had a particular issue around gender. And uh, he had another session with me a few weeks ago, and he was blown away when I asked him where he was with that issue now. He said, I can't believe you remembered my situation. I said, oh, no, no. One of my very favorite things about doing this sort of work is checking in with people later to see where they are on their journey. So if you've been thinking of doing this but have questions, just email me at kevin at show.com And everything else you need to know is at kevinallison.com. I also dearly love making those little video greetings for people. And like I was saying earlier this week, I did a big one. You know, someone paid me a little extra to really pour my heart out and give some real life advice, <laughs> heart to heart to someone in one of these videos. 
And so, yeah, I just love doing that. And you can find me for that sort of thing at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Or if you think you want something very customized, like the gal that ordered that particular one I was just talking about did, just email me at kevin at risk show.com. You know where to find everything else on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at risk show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at the Kevin Allison and come talk to us about the stories at the risk podcast fans discussion group on Facebook or our subreddit risk show folks. Today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs> <laughs>